What's going on, guys? Rakim Sabri here. And if you enjoy this podcast, you'll love my weekly newsletter. Overcoming Financial Trauma is a weekly newsletter that comes out Friday mornings at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And I discuss all things financial trauma. Subscribe at rakimsabri.substack.com. That's R-A-H-K-I-M-S-A-B-R-E-E dot substack.com. There are three subscription tiers. One is free, one is paid, and one is a founding member. If you go on over to the website, you can see the benefits associated with each tier. But if you decide to subscribe for free, that's okay too. Again, that's rakimsabri.substack.com. And I'll see you guys in the comments. Welcome to another episode of the Overcoming Financial Trauma Podcast. I'm your host, Rakim Sabri. And today I have with us Amanda Godlewski. And I'll give Amanda a second to uh, introduce herself. But we're going to have a good conversation today about generational financial trauma. We're going to talk about um, financial trauma as a whole and then wherever the rabbit hole takes us. <laughs> so Amanda, take us away. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Amanda Gadluski. I am a Latina. I am a first generation attorney and I am the founder of Miha Learns, a wealth building and business training company. Um, I'm so happy to be here and really dig into it. I'm ready. Yeah, I'm happy to have you here. I think you are... Um, the first first gen Latina guest that I have, but I'm certain that you won't be the last. But for those who are not familiar with the term first gen, can you kind of break that down for us? Sure. Um, I am first generation uh, Latina. My mother was born in Cuba. Uh, she did naturalize when she turned 18. Um, in terms of my uh degrees. I am the first person in my family to go to four-year university, the first person in my family to attend law school, and the first attorney in my family. Yeah, I think it's so important to, um, to explain that because I've heard the term first-gen tossed around quite a lot on social media. Um, it's like a buzz phrase now, right? And um, but it's not a it's not a new phenomenon, right? There are people who are the first in their family to do a lot of things, and so um, you know, giving a vocabulary to that language is certainly important. So, talk about your uh, your upbringing as a first gen Latina. Like, what was that like? <laughs> um, it uh, it is it has so I'm originally from Schenectady, New York, so upstate New York, um, which I had somebody describe as a, a pretty gritty city. Um, I uh, come from very working class, kind of blue collar parents. Um, and there was this idea, well, if you work really hard, kind of keep your head down, get those degrees, you know, you, you can make it. Um, and I truly, I believe that as a kid. Um, being much older now and wiser, I'm realizing it, ta it takes a lot more than that. Um, definitely takes a lot more in terms of, of mindset and kind of overcoming um, certain experiences in your childhood. In terms of kind of like growing up in my family um, and 
kind of leading into this topic of financial trauma and generational trauma, um, my, like money was always equated with a chaos. Money equaled chaos, money equaled stress, money equaled fighting. Um, there was no kind of sense that like money was a tool or money is how you like make things happen. Um, it was kind of a sense of this is something we have to deal with and we don't deal with it well. And we just kind of plow through it or do the, do the best you can. Um, and when I was growing up, I had a lot of lived experiences that kind of solidify that mindset and really kind of locked it in for me. Um, we experienced as a family, my mother, my father, my brother and I, um, some kind of the severe ends of, of, of loss in terms of getting into situations where my parents declared bankruptcy. Um, my parents had the house foreclosed on. My parents then went through separation and divorce. So um, at one point things had been good and then things sort of all started to unravel. Um, and so living through that and kind of living through those experiences uh, as a as a child you kind of create you you create a and it, would, it wouldn't even be a scarcity mindset it's almost like a survival mindset when you're living so day to day and you you're just in the moment you can't really think much about the future you're just trying to trying to get through the day to, to the next day yeah um, i think i think that that's so um relatable right especially to my own story but you know not to to put this on me um i've heard so many people talk about navigating um and i think i think scarcity and survival could be used um interchangeably in some instances but navigating scarcity navigating survival because it's kind of like you know walking in the darkness right and you can't see like your hand in front of your face so you have to literally like measure each step. Um, but, you know, wow, talking about the impact of those experiences and now looking at where you are today, right? So you're an attorney. Uh, why law? Um, what kind of law? But why law? And um, is that like the career that you as a little girl thought that you would end up doing? <laughs> Great questions. Um, so the type of law I practice is Actually, corporate law. I work in-house for a company based out of Austin, um, and I do a lot of uh, contracting work and advising. And no, this is not something I thought I would ever get into. I, I actually, my mom pushed me into getting into this. I remember back in high school, I said, "Oh no, 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 I'm not going to do that." I I was into the arts and music and wanted to, which I eventually did, work at a record label and kind of get in, involved in all that. Um, but at some point, uh, I realized that I, I needed to make more to survive. I, I hit kind of a, a place. When I graduated from college, we were deep in the recession. There were no jobs. <laughs> there is nothing. And, and even what you had, it was, it was pretty hard to, to, to get by on it. So I wanted to try something that was challenging, that 
I, I heard was like the hardest thing you could ever do, get through law school um, and try and kind of elevate myself in terms of, uh, you know, compensation and what I could make and what I, what, what I could turn into a, a career. Um, and so part, part of it was, um, I think when I look back now, uh, those years ago, part of it was to put myself in a better place. But I think part of it too was part of some of that generational trauma, that financial trauma. I really felt like I, I had something to prove. And for a long time, I thought I had it like something to prove to, to other people, to my family. Um, and I'm realizing now, like, I think I had a lot to prove like to myself, like a lot of like, I can do this. You're worthy. You can accomplish these things. Um, so it was kind of, I put, I put myself to the test to see, to see if I could make it through, um, and, and navigate it, which was, it's really hard when you're, you're the first in your family to, to, to go to college and then to try and navigate law school. I mean, I remember, uh, I, you had to take the LSATs to, to apply to get into law school. Um, and it was, it was so difficult. No one could, no one, no one gave me that like extra information about, you know, here, here are some like different courses and things that you can take. I mean, I, I just bought books and I studied and I, and I tried to do my best, but like, even at the very beginning, it was like, if I had had the resources and I had had, um, kind of some more insider knowledge, I could have prepared myself so much better. And it, Seems like from every moment there on, I've just been trying to uh, create this uh, career as best as I can with the knowledge that I have and people that I meet and the networking that I do to to try to try and advance. Yeah, I have two thoughts that come from just kind of your testimony, right? The first one is a reflection on a conversation I actually had this week. I was talking about growing up in, in high school, right? So I, I didn't take the LSAT and even attempt to take the LSAT. But growing up um, in high school, I took the PSAT as a, either a sophomore or a junior and I scored incredibly high on the, uh, the language arts portion. So much so that, um, and I also grew up in New York, I grew up in Westchester County. Um, I got some of the highest scores on the PSAT in the county. And so my teachers, like they had no idea um, that I guess I had this aptitude and it was like a whole big deal. Like the district calls down to the school and the school, you know, everybody's like, what happened? Like, how did you do this with no preparation? No, you know, any of that. And so they were all like very invested in getting the like classes and SAT prep and, but, but that's something that, and, and, you know, talking about privilege here, that's something that a lot of parents spend a lot of money to provide for um, their children um, and whatever level that looks like, whether that is at a high school level or a college level or beyond. And so the SAT prep that I had was all kind of like, um, I'll use a law reference like public defender versus like hiring your own attorney and, and, and 
a case, right? Like in trial law. So um, I wasn't moved. I was just kind of like, ah, whatever. Like, yeah, this is, this is me. I took the test. <laughs> and um, the reflection that I had was what if my parents could afford the SAT prep? Like if I had scored that high with no prep, what would the difference have been if I was able to have like that just raw, I don't want to call it intellect, but um, academia like directed. And so when I'm listening to your story and I I think about, you know, bootstrapping as applied to academia, right? And just kind of like trying to figure it out on your own and not knowing what you don't know, you know, that's a, that's an incredible feat. The second thought that I had was, um, what is the role of culture, right? Of your, of, of your family's culture um, coming from outside of America to America and then, you know, trying to get acclimated, trying to get acclimated as a first gen um, American while being influenced by culture on your drive Academic, from um, academically or intellectually on your drive financially. So you talked about, um, you know, being in scarcity and survival modality, but like, what did that look like for you in terms of how you uh, kind of created a pathway for what success looked like? And, um, and this is all the same question. I'm just asking it a different way. So I don't want you to feel like you have to remember all of them, but like, Basically, like, what is the influence of culture on your success or the obstacles to achieving success? Those are great questions. Um, I mean, I think it's huge. And I think it depends on also if you are a son or a daughter. Mm. Um, I think that's huge. So um, my... My mother was a Cuban immigrant. My father is a Polish American. So I grew up in an interesting household because I didn't have two immigrant parents. Um, And so it was, you know, a little bit of the Cuban culture, you know, mixed with the the Polish culture. And I have to say, though, like kind of across the board for both cultures, it was a a sense of... um, work hard. If you work really hard, if you work extremely hard, you're going to achieve success. The sense of just like, really like put your head down and just work hard and then good things will come. Um, and then I would also say that for like on the, on the, on the Cuban side, there is definitely a sense of family, like a family unit. Like we were all taking care of each other. Um, and, and it maybe it's also because I'm a daughter and I'm the, the eldest daughter, this kind of sense of responsibility. And I, I didn't, I haven't, I didn't realize it for years until now I'm older and I have a family and I have children, but there was a kind of a lot of responsibility placed on me when, when I was very young, I was very aware of the money, um, issues that we had, um, to the point where I would take steps to uh, kind of preemptively like help, you know, I would, I would be aware of conversations or fights. Um, I would be taking money from my birthday or Christmas 
I would be loaning it to my parents to buy some groceries so we could have, you know, breakfast for dinner one night or that sort of thing. It's like at a very young age, you know, elementary age, eight years old, you know, I'm already kind of getting conditioned to, to understand family unit. We got to take care of each other and you've got to kind of plan. You've got to do, even at your young age, you kind of have to plan, um, for certain situations that are going to come up financial or otherwise. And that story and that conditioning just kept echoing. Like as I got older, um, the sense of, you know, contributing and taking care of the family. And, um, and, and I think part of the, like the cultural piece is and for women is this self-sacrifice piece. Like mm-hmm. I, I love my parents and they did the best with the knowledge that they had and, and they made the best decisions that they could at the time. Um, and when I, when I look back kind of on my experiences, I I kind of see that I may have not advocated for myself for the pathway that I want, the career that I wanted. I may not have spoken out and, and place firm boundaries and said, this is what I'm willing to do. This is what I'm not willing to do. And I kind of just automatically reverted to, no, this is what I have to do because I'm part of this family and I'm the daughter. And as much as they wanted me to get a great education and get out there, you know, they still had issues at home. So, you know, I remember like getting out of college and I found a position and I had kind of figured out where I was going to live and I had kind of figured it all out and I was really excited and then I had gotten a call and it was like you know we're having we're having some issues back here I need your help can you come back yeah and I had just graduated and I had I you know I'm looking to the future I'm looking to to building something and it wasn't even like a hesitation. It was like automatic. It was like, yep. Okay. And I think mm-hmm. like within the next few days, I had called the employer and I said, I, I turned down this position and they were just like, what? <laughs> they, they just couldn't, like, they couldn't understand. And so like, when you ask culturally, like to me, it's that like sense, at least that I had of like, no, when, 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 when you're asked, you step up and and you come back and, you know, you find a job here locally and you, you know, help support the family and help do what, do what you can to, to help us all. all So if you could, if you could deliver a message to that version of yourself, or maybe a version of somebody else who's experiencing, you know, those kind of competing uh, pulls, right, of culture and personal ambition, what, how would you advise them, right, because, well, well I'll, I'll save my commentary, but how would you advise them? You know, I think after many years, I don't think I can advise them. I mm. think I would ask them and implore them to do some inner work to speak with someone, a counselor, a therapist, 
and do some healing because I think at a point when you are so self-sacrificing and, and you're constantly putting somebody else or your family and, and, and like in front of, in front of yourself and you're getting pulled into these different paths and you're, you're completely cutting out your own needs. You, you, you've now gotten yourself in a, a situation that you, you can't think your way out of. You can't check up, you know, one, two, three. Okay. I'll do this. And then I'll do this and I'll do that. You've got to kind of start this healing process where it's like, you're worthy and what you want to do is meaningful. And at a certain age, you're an adult and you are, you are allowed to explore your purpose and what you're meant for. And you can try and help other individuals that need help, but there has to be some, some set of boundaries there has to be some sort of line um or else you're going to get constantly pulled in type of into these types of relationships and expectations um that i think are unreasonable but at the same time here i am nearing 40 and i'm not just worrying about me and my husband's retirement i'm not worrying about the college fund for my kids I'm trying to figure out what, what, what I do in a few years when my parents are older. Mm-hmm. They, you know, there's no retirement plan. There's no kind of like long-term planning. You know, I say all this and, but it's like, but there's still the realities. These, these are your people. These are, this is your family. Right. And you're going to have those responsibilities. Yeah. That that's the, uh, the part of my commentary that I like wanted to suppress before hearing your feedback, because, um, and we kind of talked about, you know, prior to, to going alive, like the differences in culture and the similarities in culture. And, and that's a similarity, I think, um, within the black community between like, you know, the, the Latino community is that there is like this sense of community there's a sense of family that often takes precedent over um, individuality. And when I look at that personally, I can see there being pros to that. Um, it's just kind of the way things are, right? It's kind of the way things have always been. But I can also see there being cons to that when we talk about generational trauma um, and certainly generational financial trauma because you're often left with kind of like the mess of the previous generation. Um, and, and I hate to call it the mess, but, you know, for lack of better phrasing, you're left with the burden of somebody else's um, decision or indecision, their mistakes, or um, maybe their, their strategy, their strategic successes. And more often than not, in our communities, we are left holding kind of like the negative aspects of what that looked like. Then we are, um, you know, stepping into like inheritances and, you know, these life-changing life insurance policies. And um, to your point, it's just kind of like an automatic reaction, like, okay, well, this is, this is what I have to do. I have to do this. So, um, 
Yeah, I mean, you, talk, you, you touched on a lot and, and we went down, uh, we, got, we went deep fast because there is the intersection of culture, right? Um, and there's the intersection of being the eldest daughter. And I've seen a lot of dialogue on the role of the eldest daughter in, in um, Black and Latina families as kind of like, a second mom, right? Like a secondary caretaker of the rest of the family. And so that expectations and the obligations associated with being in that role. Um, but then we also talked about the intersection of like, what is your personal ambition? Um, this whole idea that you have to work really, really, really hard and you're working hard from a position of not really knowing, right? Like you have to just kind of figure it out and uh, I mean, that's all, that's, that's all very tough uh, intersections and positions to be in and to, and to embody in one person. Um, I wanna go back to something that you said earlier. So we, talking, we talked about you going into law and that not necessarily being the career path that you wanted, but then also that your mom kind of like pushed you in that direction. And so then you go in that direction, but then now you're being called back home. Talk about like, I don't wanna say confusion, but like talk about how that may have created discord within you to pursue a path that maybe you weren't necessarily thrilled about pursuing initially, but then being called back after doing what it is that you were told to do. It's incredibly, it feels incredibly defeating. Um, mm. And at the point where she called me back, I was, I had finished college. I, ha I hadn't, I hadn't decided to go to law school yet. Um, but I remember that my whole childhood, right. And all these like messaging that I had gotten about, you know, you're going to go to college. If you go to college, you're going to get a great job. Your life is going to be all set. This American dream kind of idea before the, you know, the great recession hit. And I remember thinking, I worked so hard. I was one of, you know, I, I didn't have the resources and the knowledge. I didn't have, you know, money saved for my college. So I had to get really good grades. I had to be in every extracurricular and the treasurer of this and the president of that to finally just be accepted. And then I had to work all those years um, and go to school and work worked multiple jobs throughout my, put myself through, through college. And I had achieved this, this thing that was, was going to change my life. Right. It was going to, it was going to be the, it was going to be the thing that was going to make everything perfect. As long as I got that degree and I got the degree. And like I said, the economy was garbage. Um, and I had managed somehow through just like, yeah, bootstrapping is just a great word. Just like pure energy and like optimism. I, I had found a position and I, and I let it go. And it just felt like, for what? Why did I work so hard? Because now I'm four years later and I'm back at home. And here I had went off and I was going to conquer the world. And, and, and now I'm back here with all these, these issues because you know, I thought I could 
distance myself from them, but they they were they were still there. So I'd say for me, yeah, it was this kind of sense of failure. I had graduated, but I'm kind of back in square one. I'm back where I was when I when I left high school. Yeah, I can imagine that feeling defeating. I think that that's really the perfect word um, to kind of sum up, sum up those feelings. Um, but now you're a mom, right? And you have a family of your own and you have to kind of instill values as a mom into your children. So what are maybe values that you pull from your earlier experiences blending two different cultures, really three different cultures, right? You're talking about the influence of your um, Polish background with your dad. You're talking about the influence of your Cuban background with your mom and the influence of, you know, this American culture that, um, you know, you have the choice to either assimilate into or kind of try to maintain um, separation from, which is extremely difficult uh, with this next generation of children who have access to literally the world at their fingertips, right? Through TikTok, through social media. So talk to me about some of the values that, um, that you instill in your children um, and, and some of the cultural elements that you've pulled from your experiences as a child and um, absolutely have decided to pass down. And maybe some of the cultural elements from your childhood that you've decided to kind of say, you know what, like we're not gonna include this in the batch. Yeah, so, I mean, there's so many great things cu culturally that I wanted to pass down. Um, and, you know, number one is family. So <laughs> the thing that I've been uh, harking on of, of, of being a negative, it, it is a, it is a positive. And, and for me and my husband, for our children, family is everything. It's important to support each other. And um, certainly in like, even just like parenting techniques and that sort of thing, just being an ear to listen to when they have needs. Um, and I think the difference in how we're parenting is the sense that, you know, family is important and we take care of each other, but we also kind of, and they're very young. I mean, they're only six and two, but respecting each other as an individual and what your interests are and what your hopes are and never shooting down any ideas because, oh, that's not a job or, or like, that that's that isn't feasible like you can't make that happen um I know when I was younger I was I loved to write and I wanted to be a writer but that's that's not a real job although I would argue that now as an attorney I, I write a lot <laughs> <laughs> half of my job um but like encouraging our children to discover who they are and what they like and not just have this mindset of we well, have to take this path but that was, all, that was all they knew, do you know what I mean? But now that we know better, we kind of want to open their minds to the fact that, well, there is no one path. And even if you go on one path and it doesn't work out, you can get on this other path. There's, there's millions of paths. Um, I think the second thing is uh, I, would I continue this idea of working hard. I think work ethic is, is very important. Um, I think that's what brings life satisfaction as well, committing yourself to 
passion or project or something that's meaningful to you. But to also understand this concept that it doesn't have to completely consume you. You don't, you don't have to just constantly be working, working multiple jobs or working and then side hustle that you're, you're allowed, you're allowed to rest. You're allowed to take care of yourself um, and respect yourself in that way. You know what I mean? Take care of yourself holistically. Um, and I guess to go along with that as well as from what I've learned now is trying to, and it's, it's subtle now because they're young, but to make them realize that um, the way money works, you don't necessarily have to trade your time for money. There, there's other ways, it's a tool. There's other ways to make it and acquire it and to grow it. That's just a concept that was like completely foreign to me yeah <laughs> really for a long time not until most recently this sense of like well i'm i don't have to be tied to a salary i don't have to just literally trade my hour for a rate um super freeing um super kind of just like wow there's other there's other ways to to make this happen yeah i think that that's super important um of a money lesson because it is the way that we're socialized to view and interact with money. And I don't think that that's unique to any one culture, right? Even in the way that we are socialized through school, like we're taught the kind of along that same paradigm, right? You work hard, you get good grades, you go out, you get a good job, you get a good job so that you can make good money. And then, you know, what are considered the best jobs, right? The jobs that pay a salary that give you the benefits package. Um, you know, a lot of people are looking for like those six figure positions, but what, what you were not taught, rather what's not spoken of in those roles is that um, particularly tied into a salary, there's no cap on the number of hours that you could put in. And oftentimes you're expected to put in um, hours in excess of, you know, what is considered your standard 40 hour work week. So, you know, I think that those, um, those lessons are valuable because when you talk about the value of family and the value of respecting somebody as an individual and their goals and their dreams and their aspirations, like, and then, you know, tie that into, of course, the, the, the lesson around not trading your time for money or not always trading your time for money. I think, you know, there's so much, to be avoided by way of discord within, you know, arguments and, you know, not spending enough quality time and, um, you know, feeling belittled or feeling defeated to your earlier point that you are giving your children before they even have to cross those bridges. So that's, um, that's super encouraging as a financial educator. Um, and it's super, super encouraging as somebody who's focusing now on like money behaviors and, and, you know, some of the kind of reoccurring messaging that I've had from guests on, you know, this podcast is that a lot of the behaviors and the beliefs that we develop as adults around money start in childhood. So although you mentioned that they're very young, um, that, but that, that youth matters. Um, those lessons are going to, in some way, shape, or form, kind of sit with them in the back of their mind. And um, it's, it's going to influence how they interact with money in the future. So I think the timing is perfect. Yeah. Um, 
on the topic of money, what are some other money lessons maybe that you would share, not necessarily just with your children, right? But anybody who is um, experiencing maybe an experience similar to yours, right? So their first gen, maybe they um, want to go to college or maybe they want to not go to college, right? Uh, maybe they have a, an interest in a creative career, right? Influencing um, or be, being like a, a social media influencer is like a really top paying job right now, but that would be considered like art. That would be considered not a real job. And I love that you, um, you mentioned writing as uh, quote unquote, not a real job in the past, uh, because a, a lot of the money that I've made as an entrepreneur has come from writing freelance. And I never considered growing up that I could get paid to write. So um, yeah, what are, what are some, some money lessons or advice or perspectives that you would give for somebody who's experiencing that uniquely? Because there's the clashing of a lot of worlds in that position. Yeah. Well, it's really, it's complicated because, um, you know, the role that I'm involved with, with Miha Learns and kind of the wealth building piece, you know, is teaching people how to, you know, grow their money, hold on to it, like strategy, that sort of thing. But you have to be in a place where you even have that privilege. Um, and you can't really budget your way into, into wealth or, or kind of uh, growing your financial security and, and growing your financial safety net. Um, and I think if I was talking to someone coming from a similar background, talking to myself as a, as a young person, I would, I would say that one of the, um, one of kind of like the methods I think of trying to, to get there, whether it's, you know, you want to become a creator and be an influencer, this sort of thing, is you've got to really find a way to create a life and find a career that will balance your passions, what you want to do with a reasonable amount of expenses. So what I'm, one thing that I, I focus on um, in terms of me, how learns is it's not necessarily how much you make, it's how much you keep. <laughs> Oh, you know, how much your expenses are and that sort of thing. So if you're early on and you're starting out um, and you're single, you don't have a family, that sort of thing. I mean, I would find a way to make my expenses as low as possible. <laughs> Roommates, um, you know what I mean? Uh, trying to find other ways of, if you're interested in, in college, you know, cutting expenses in terms of um, what degree or what school is going to kind of give you that expertise that you need, but is not going to complete you completely put you in the hole. So when you're looking at schools, you're not just looking at prestige and, um, you know, degrees and that sort of thing. What is the price point? Um, 
because I mean, student loan debt is, is, is huge. I mean, it's multi-billion dollar <laughs> segment of American life. And I know it, that it, student, le student loan debt for me has definitely held me back. And I wish when I was younger, I could have told myself, take those numbers and really figure out when you graduate, what are you gonna owe a month? Get, get serious about those numbers. It, it, isn't, it isn't just something that you're gonna have to worry about in the future. The future is gonna come and you're gonna have to pay those numbers. Um, so trying to kind of like look at what the other options are because it might be worth going to community college for two years, transferring to a four year. It might be worth auditing a, you know, don't do four years in college and then decide I hate this major because now I have to get into this job in this industry that I don't love. You know, audit a class, audit a class at $500 and now you've saved yourself from a whole semester and, 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 and feeling that you're now all this money in the hole, you might as well just keep going. Um, so I think, I think those are two things. Just keep your expenses low, be aware of, the slippery slope of student loan debt. Cause that is, man, that is something. <laughs> Definitely. <clears throat> Amanda, as we wrap this conversation up, why don't you tell people where they can find you um, and where they can find more about your, um, your project, Miha Learns? Sure. So you can find um, Miha Learns online, mihalearns.com. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn at Amanda Godlewski. I post weekly different kind of like updates and tips to help you get your mindset right, uh, tell you about some uh, good investing pathways and that sort of thing. Um, and I'm just, I'm really all about education. My whole focus and me how learns came out of wanting to share what I had learned almost as if, you know, if this is what I was going to tell my kids, this is what I was going to share with them to make sure that they were on a, a pathway for a much better future. Fantastic. And I'll include the links to your LinkedIn profile and me how learned in the show notes, but this has been an amazing conversation. And um, I actually would love to have you come back, just kind of dive a little bit deeper because I think there's so much that we talked about, but there's so much that we didn't talk about. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot there. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I mean, if you're open to it, definitely. I'd love to see you come back in season two. But um, everybody, this has been another episode of the Overcoming Financial Trauma podcast. I'm your host, Rakim Sabri. And until next time, see you guys in the comments. Hey, guys, Rakim Sabri here. And I just wanted to drop by and thank you for listening to this week's episode. Please share with your friends. Rate my episode on whatever your preferred listening platform is. And if you have any feedback, reach out to me on social everywhere at Rakim Sabri. No underscores, hyphens, or periods. Until next time, I'll see you guys in the comments.